Hello church, excited to be with you, uh, excited to share from Acts 9 today, where we're really going to learn God is active and engaged and inviting people towards participation in his kingdom. We're going to look at two stories today that bear witness to the type of God we serve. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 9. We're going to look at verses um, 32 through 43. And as you turn there, I'll start by sharing a snapshot of my own story as we look at story today together. My story, I, I grew up uh, active in my local church, part of Boys Brigade. Now, this was before Awana, but Boys Brigade, where basically we played Socom every Wednesday night or dodgeball. My dad was actually the leader of it. He had four boys, and that was the boys' favorite game, so we just kept playing it uh, every Wednesday night, and people kept coming. I memorized 400 verses at church, mainly through Awana, and was presented in a Bible in, in front of the entire church one Sunday. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I was kind of doing most of the right stuff, right? I always had a stable understanding of who God was. I wasn't getting into a ton of trouble. I had a sense of uh, what was pleasing to the Lord, right? Good and bad behavior based on just the stability of that local church. And uh, it was generally good. There were, there were many issues. We'll cover those another time. But the main thing was God was a truth that I believed in. And that set me on a good course. I ended up studying theology at SPU, and uh, then I had this moment, a jarring moment, when I realized I might as well be studying math or American history or philosophy. Theology was great, but it was just a subject, a category of study that I loved, but the personal nature of God was completely missing. And the realization hit me one afternoon like a ton of bricks. Am I even a Christian? I agreed with the story of Jesus on the cross. I acknowledged myself as broken and Jesus was the solution, technically. But why is this not manifesting in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I was trying to perform these fruits, but they were really fruits of my spirit. Though well-directed by theological beliefs, this was a depressing truth I had discovered. I was, I was manifesting these gifts in any way I could, which was actually turning me into a person who was really just hiding myself from the world because I could see these fruits weren't authentically coming out of my life. As long as I hid, people could assume that these good things were uh, true to my deepest core. In fact, one friend... Uh, <laughs> was observant enough to challenge me one afternoon after track and field practice at Wallace Field at SPU. Chris, are you actually the person that we see? Are you doing okay? Are, are you for real? Are you always this cool, calm, and collected? It was a fair question. Months went by, and uh, depression kind of sank in. Discouragement sank in. Who am I? What's the point of all this? These were questions I couldn't answer. Late one night, I was skateboarding down by uh, the canal with my roommate, Dan, and we were walking back up West Emerson Hill to our apartment when something happened that changed my life. God actually spoke to me. I see you. It was clear that God was aware of all that was occurring on the corner of 6th and West Emerson. I, I looked around. I noticed where I was. I noticed... Weeds in the crack of the sidewalk, the dry, worn pavement. I noticed my warm breath made visible by the cool midnight air and, and the dim street lights. I noticed my sweaty t-shirt. I noticed the thrashed wood on the underside of my skateboard. Dan didn't hear it, 
because God was actually talking to me. And strangely, he spoke directly to the problem that I could not even define. God saw me. I know this because he told me so. And in some ways, it was even more powerful that he didn't use my name. It was more just this understanding that God could see where I was. He could see who I was. He could see me. And he wanted me to know that I could see him. He was real. No longer a subject to study, but a person interested in me. As this started to sink in, he spoke again. Not audibly, but it's like I just knew his thought. I knew his mind. Uh, I see you. And then a few minutes later, he said, you and I will have great adventures together. And that was it. (laughs) The ongoing nature of our relationship was proclaimed by God. We had a future together. He said so. I felt alive. I felt light. I felt free. I I felt fearless. God was taking the lead with me and my life. And it was like, let's go. Let's do it. Let's have these adventures turned everything on its head for me. Uh, He turned an intellectual faith into an actual faith. I walk with him now. Sometimes I admit I don't listen to him. In fact, usually I intentionally don't listen to him when I want to do something destructive, right? But he's talking and I listen. He's saved me. He leads me in what the Bible calls paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And life has been a great adventure indeed. There's been highs, there's been lows. But God has invited me and is inviting us, of course, to follow and abide with him in this life. What great news. Now, this is just a snapshot of my life uh, because there's something powerful in personal testimony of those who follow Jesus. People will debate with you well-crafted arguments. People will question the authority of Scripture and even the existence of God because these are subjects, and the Western world loves to criticize and rationalize things to death, believing that we're actually perfectly objective beings. And so we love subjects that we can stand apart from and debate and critique. But I learned that night on 6th and Emerson that there was something more than just being a Western thinker. Uh, I learned this is actually a shortcoming of the West, right? Postmodernism actually senses this, this thought well. It swings, unfortunately, wildly away from objective truth to uphold subjective personal experience as the only truth. And so here we're challenged to share our story in a way that connects with our listeners. But what I realized was God was not a subject to be studied, nor was I just sort of having my own experience over in the corner. But there was something powerful going on. I was in relationship with the King of Kings, with the creator of the world. What an amazing thing. These stories, of course, this personal testimony, is the thing that is distinctive for us, that as we share it, people are just sort of forced to deal with it. <laughs> it this, this is what happened to me. And people can come to their own conclusions. In our passage this week, we're looking at two amazing stories like this, found in Acts 9. Uh, more amazing than mine, although different um, and so if you, if you turn to Acts 9, we're going to look at uh, 30, 32 through 43, read the rest of the chapter there. And a little context, there's a major shift in scene here. We've got the dramatic story of Paul happening. We've got his conversion. He's been blinded. He was killing people. And now he's, you know, on this pathway to walking rightly with the Lord. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's like just total change of scene. We're now back to the ongoing work of the Apostle Peter. 
Peter's traveling northeast of Jerusalem to Joppa, uh, which is kind of, yeah, northeast of Jerusalem near the coast, near modern-day Tel Aviv. Uh, and Lydia, which is inland a little bit, and other communities in the Judea area, Peter's traveling in that area. Likely he's traveling because a, a, a recent persecution had, had, had halted, and so there was a goal of freely preaching the gospel while encouraging scattered brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter's taking advantage of, of sort of a lull in the, in the chaos to bring stability and hope. Uh, we also know Philip had recently traveled through this area on his way to Caesarea. In Acts 8, we learn about this, the Ethiopian story. It says he traveled up this direction after uh, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And he undoubtedly bore witness to the good news of Jesus as well, helping to establish and grow local churches. Um, and so this is kind of the context for our two stories. And the first story, um, uh, uh, as we read together, is uh, the story of Aeneas. So let's, let's read this together. Verse 32, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. What I love about this story is there's no small errand in the kingdom of God, right? He's like, hey, I'm just going to go visit some guys. Peter went to visit the saints in Lydda. This small task turns into a miniature revival or maybe even a major revival in the region. No number is given. But as a known local paralytic, this is all we really know of Aeneas. Was he a believer? We're not really sure. But as a known local paralytic is healed, and the story of this healing turns uncountable people toward the Lord. Not just in the town of Lydda, but in the neighboring town of Sharon as well. Peter's walking with the Lord literally allows someone else to walk, which eventually lands uh, in tons of people. It says actually all people turn to the Lord. It's quite an amazing, quite an amazing passage. Let's look at story number two as we, as we pick up the reading in um, verse uh, 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothings that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. This is reminiscent of Elisha in the Old Testament. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. He talked to Jesus. He talked to God. This relationship is central. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is an amazing story, right? This is like Lazarus. This is like Jesus, somebody actually coming back from the dead, or the, the son of the Shumamite woman in, in uh, 2 Kings that we read about Elisha. And literally, you've got one word difference, right? When, when Jesus raises uh, Jairus' uh, daughter, uh, Jesus says, 
Talitha, get up. And, and Peter just changes one letter, Tabitha, get up. It's like Peter's not doing his own idea. He's following the footsteps of Jesus. And as he does this, we see this amazing, amazing miracle. And when you think about it, Peter's visit to Joppa was essentially just visiting a few widows, right? Their dear sister Tabitha had passed and they'd placed her in the upper room calling for Peter to come as they mourned. And, but we have, to, we have to unpack this person a little bit because the Bible does, right? They tell us a lot about Tabitha. Tabitha was quite an amazing person, sort of despite her Greek name Dorcas. It's kind of like, let's stick with, <laughs> stick with the Hebrew. But both her Hebrew name, Tabitha, and her Greek name, Dorcas, both meant gazelle. And you might get the image of this super industrious, hardworking person, um, uh, participant with Jesus, right? Someone who was part of the growing church, someone who was helping to unroll the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God in, in Joppa. Uh, in fact, Tabitha is the only person given the feminine form of the word disciple in the New Testament. So she had the same title as the 12 disciples of Jesus. Um, unlike the nondescript Aeneas, we're given this, this truly remarkable description of an amazing woman. Uh, in Tabitha. She was a seamstress. She weaved clothing. She was blessing people with every stitch. Um, she was mending ripped cloaks, you know, but also mending hearts. She was part of the the ministry that, that uh, Jesus had to do and providing needs, basic needs for the larger community. I mean, it's quite an amazing description to just say, um, this is the description of Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Wouldn't that be nice to have on on your you know your tombstone, right? Well, this is Chris. He was always doing good. He was always serving the poor. Just a successful life lived in the person of Tabitha. Um, if you consider the fact that we see Tabitha in her hard work, in her dedication, building relationships, um, and you can see that with these widows who are literally showing Peter their clothing, right? Like, hey, Tabitha actually made this jacket. Tabitha actually fixed this for me. And they're so excited to, to brag about Tabitha when Peter comes. So her story is quite powerful. Oh, and she was raised from the dead. So that's kind of an interesting part of the story as well. Uh, here you have someone raised from the dead who's known amongst the poor. And what happens? It says, this testimony became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Now, what I love about these two stories in Acts 9, <clears throat> they don't really make for a great three-point sermon. Like, there's no real advice here, right? Like, uh, what you need to do if you want to raise someone from the dead is send people out of the room and uh, make sure the person who died uh, has is always doing good. And it's like, no, there, there, there is no formula here. There's no recipe here that if we put in the right things, the right thing will pop out. Um, this isn't a story of the widows had great faith, so someone was healed. It doesn't even really say Peter had great faith. It's like there's just these two testimonies, these two amazing stories that are so powerful that they completely interrupt the journey of Paul. It's kind of like Luke is stopping and saying, hey, this stuff about Paul is pretty cool, but you got to hear this stuff is super crazy what Peter did when he went to Joppa and Lydda. And what we'll see later is that Luke actually uses these stories to reaffirm Peter's leadership, the power of Jesus. Uh, and, and even, this is a side note, but even this last little thing, and Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner, is helpful to move the narrative forward because Tanners work with dead animals. These are people who are perpetually unclean in the Jewish world. And here we see Peter leaning away from that heavy religiosity 
of Judaism and, and toward the freedom we, that we have in Christ with this last little sentence. It's kind of a transitional sentence. But these two stories are powerful. And what I love is Luke just gives us the straight narrative. And you're kind of left with this, hey, do whatever you want with it. But Aeneas walked through the power of Jesus. Do whatever you want with this. But Tabitha, you remember Tabitha? She died and through the power of Jesus, she came back to life. That's kind of what we're left with with these stories. One story is brief, a man known for his sickness. He's, he's limited in his ability in life. And yet it, it says all who heard the story turned to Jesus. One story is complex. We have this woman who's, who's related to a gazelle, right? This fast animal that's just this kind of you know, energy who's producing. She's vibrant. She's industrious. God sees them both, and both of them, the one who's sick and the one who's vibrant, both are used to amplify the story of the kind of person we follow in Jesus. It's kind of an amazing thing, right? It's just a narrative. It's a testimony. It's a, it's a declaration, right? The gospel is actually news. It's good news. What is the gospel? It's a story. It's a narrative. Here's what happened. So, as we, as we look at these scriptures, as we take these in, we obviously want to acknowledge the nature of God, bringing health to the sick, uh, giving his, his followers, Peter, right, power to impact the world, um, the widows who loved Tabitha, the, the service of the poor. There's all kinds of great things we can pull out of this. But I want to kind of pull out just one observation for us as we look at this. There's thousands of but I want to pull out one observation for us and one challenge for us as we look at the, the second half of Acts 9. The observation is simply this. A powerful story has impact. Um, and stories that align with Jesus have kingdom impact. Uh, you know, story is the primary medium for how humans discover meaning, right? Like we'll give up sleep. We'll sacrifice our rest. We got to work in the morning, but we'll sacrifice sleep needed for our health, for our survival, in order to finish watching that movie or maybe one more episode before I go to sleep. Uh, this is how we are with stories. It's like it, it will, it will um, move us to change our priorities, right? If we, if we get involved in an engrossing story. We share stories when we meet old friends that remind each other of our deep friendship, our powerful history together, our, the good times, the bad times. We thank people by recounting stories. Hey, when you came and did this, it really impacted me. And we align our lives with stories, good or bad. We, we want to be a part of a story. We want to be a part of a narrative. We may resonate with a story. We may be repulsed by a story when we hear it. Jesus said he would be a sweet aroma to some and a pungent odor to others. But we don't often tell stories about things that don't matter. That's why stories build meaning. This is why humans use stories to find meaning. We don't tell usually the nondescript stories of like, you know, Kriskoff woke in the morning and poured himself a bowl of cereal and he ate it. It's kind of like, okay, unless that's setting up for something else, there's not a lot of meaning there. But what we do is we tell the story of God spoke to me on the corner of 6th and Emerson. We tell the story of a thoughtful gift. We tell the story of a reconciled relationship. We tell the story of a great disaster or a great fortune. 
and all point us toward the values and expectations we have around our lives, right? Like, here's a story of something horrible that happened, and that's just not how life should be. Or here's this amazing story, isn't this wonderful, that father and son and are reconciled together, and that's what it's all about. Sometimes I'm saddened by the stories we join as Christians, the shows we watch, the hashtags that we uh, that we retweet or whatever, the stories um, that we align ourselves with, that we recommend to one another, because the stories we invest in, they will transform us, right? We need to be careful, be careful little eyes what you see, right? Be careful little ears what you hear. This is something we teach our children and seem to think that we're above it as we grow older. But impactful stories have impact. Now, these miraculous stories we read about here have a catalytic ability to push people to think about eternal things, real things, spiritual things, meaningful things. Not just miracles, but disasters. You know, Sandy Hook churches triple in size after the shooting at the elementary school. This, of course, must be very frustrating to the enemy. It's like destructive activities point people towards Jesus um, as they reveal the darkness departing you know, from his good and perfect way. And then beautiful stories point to the goodness of God's design. It's like truth seems to win regardless of the story that's being told as long as the story is true. Colossians says all things are summed up in Jesus. All things will be summed up in Jesus. He is the story. He's the story that all others nudge us toward. Productivity and health point to him like Tabitha. Injury and sickness point to him like in, the, in, in Aeneas. And we must recognize that God has given us catalytic moments in our own lives so that we can not just understand who he is for ourselves, but also be a primary witness to the activity of God in our life as good news to a hurting and watching world who's looking for that story to join. The story of Aeneas was for him, but it was also for the church and even for the city. And the same with Tabitha. It was an encouragement to the widows, but it was also good news for people who needed to hear, maybe even for the first time, who the person of Jesus is. So that's the observation. Impactful stories have impact, right? That's why they're called impactful stories. Our challenge as we look at this passage is this. Can you tell your story? What's your story? And can you tell your story, not in the way of the world of like, well, this is my truth, but in the way of like, this is my story in such a way where Jesus is the hero of the story. Look at these two stories we read in Acts 9. People didn't finally trust Peter. It's like, and Peter was trusted by all. It doesn't say anything positive happened with Peter. People didn't turn to Aeneas and say, and Aeneas became, uh, you know, a, a godly leader in the city and a mayor and so and so on. No, and, and people didn't turn their faith toward Tabitha. These people looked at Jesus. It reminds me of Matthew 5, where it says that as we do these good works, people will turn their eyes to heaven and look at God and look at Jesus through our good works. Um, <clears throat> Paul Tripp says, uh, uh, theologian Paul Tripp says, God is not satisfied with you being a witness to works of his grace. He's called you to be an instrument of that grace to others. In other words, God did do something from Tab through Tabitha's life, but, but Tabitha wasn't a dead end. She was a pass-through. God's activity was to love the whole world, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the whole world 
that he's raising Tabitha from the dead, that he's speaking to Chris on 6th and Emerson, that he's, what's the fill in the blank for you? This is my challenge for you. Take a chunk of time this week. Pencil out the story. See if you can get it to 60 seconds or something. But what is the story of your life where Jesus is the hero of that story? We call that a testimony, right? Pencil it out. Share it with someone. Share it with a believer. We need encouragement. Um, uh, in Scripture, when it says to bear witness, I think we often think in terms of evangelism to the unbeliever. But often it's Peter was actually going to visit the believers in Lydda. He wasn't going there to evangelize the city. He was going there to bring comfort and encouragement to the believers. And then to go to Joppa to see Tabitha to bring comfort and encouragement to the believers there. Bearing witness, sharing your testimony is for believers too, who can be encouraged. But we also want to share this with non-believers so that they might turn to him like the people of Sharon, uh, Joppa, and Lydia. So how do we share a story? Here's, here's some super practical stuff. If you're a note taker, um, you know, maybe you want to write some of these things down uh, in terms of structures. These are just two ideas. There's a million ways to share your story. I've heard of a technique called the three pillar technique, where it's like, what are three major events that happen in your life? Hey, when my, when my mom died or, you know, when I got married or when we, when I first had kids or, you know, my divorce was really difficult or when, you know, what are those major things that happened in your life and how do those shape the narrative of your story? And how do you tell that story in such a way that Jesus is the hero? Um, Another one is kind of that basic transformation story, right? I think of the blind man Jesus heals who simply says, I once was blind, but now I see. So that story is kind of like, here's who I was before Jesus. Here's what happens when I met Jesus. And here's who I was after meeting Jesus. It's very simple. Uh, could be just a couple of sentences. I remember hearing a woman um, uh, in one of my classes at Multnomah. We were in a study group with this Lady, she was in her 60s, awesome lady. She's up in Bothell uh, on staff as a women's ministry director. Um, but she said, I said, hey, what happened when you became a Christian? And she said, you know, I used to not like people. And when I understood God's love for me, she said, one of the craziest things, I just liked people. I loved people all of a sudden. I mean, what is that, three sentences? And here she's got this before Christ, meeting Christ, after Christ. It's a transformation story. Uh, another way you may want to consider telling the story, and this is the last, I mean, there's a billion ways. These are just a couple of structures you may want to consider. But it's kind of the story form story in line with the biblical story, right? So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So creation, hey, God made me like this, you know, and I was good at it, right? Like I was good at dealing with the chaos in my home, or I loved soccer, or I painted pictures, or I had a wonderful family, or uh, you know, I had figured out a way to deal with the difficulty in my life. How did God make you? What, what was the beginning of the story like? Then that's the creation. What's the fall? Creation fall. Here's the broken problem. I, I couldn't fix myself, right? I, I, I realized I needed to perform in my short story that I shared earlier. It's like I, I started disappearing, withdrawing from the world because I didn't have congruency with what I believed and what was really going on in my heart until I knew God saw me, right? But the fall, like what's the broken, pro what's the broken problem? Your, my hopes were smashed. 
My coping mechanism that helped me was now crushing me. What's the fall look like in your story? And then what's the redemption look like? Hey, I thought this would save me and it didn't. It couldn't. I needed something outside of myself. And God said, I see you answering a question I wasn't even asking, but it solved my problem. Or maybe he said, God said to me, it is finished. And I was able to forgive and release and let something go. Or maybe you said, when I knew that God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that solved everything for me. That changed everything for me. Or my grandma, um, my great grandma, who when she heard John 3.16, she said, God actually loves me. And she raised her hand at VBS and followed Jesus, which changed a family tree. Redemption is powerful. It's the how. Jesus saved me. How? You'll need to fill in that blank. So, so in this model, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It's like, hey, I still have problems. But you know what? I now know whose strength I can rely upon. Hey, I still have problems. I still do the things I want to do. But I now know that God is speaking to me and I can stop and listen then scripture says the Holy Spirit will lead me into all truth. And now I walk in newness of life. This is, this is uh, the opportunity that you have. So, so anyways, three pillars, you know, the before, after, uh, the story form, creation, fall, uh, uh, redemption, new creation. Think through how you'd want to tell your story and uh, pencil it out. That's your challenge for the week. Because the reason I'm challenging you to do this um, we should be able to share with people the hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus' pathway for transforming the world, you know, he has victory and de over death on the cross. Then he says, go out and make disciples because it's this transformation of lives one at a time. People turning from serving themselves or serving evil things or lost or broken or whatever, as we all are, God transforms us into people who labor towards the building of God's kingdom here on earth till he returns, right? And until his ultimate authority is asserted in the world, um, he's left us to be his witnesses, to be salt and light and yeast in this world. One story, one disciple making another, one story after another of hope found in Jesus, this has changed the world. I love the passage in Ephesians 1, and it says that before the foundation of the world, we were formed before the foundations of the world, right? Before God says, let there be light, it's like we were in God's mind. So of course he sees me on, on Emerson and Sixth. He formed me before the foundation of the world. God has this meta-narrative, what he's doing with all of creation. But he's formed each of us individually to participate in that story. So is God the hero of your story, right? That's the question for us. Is God the hero of your story? If he is, can you tell that story? Your testimony may impact those around you in untold ways. Tabitha and Aeneas and Peter, you know, they eventually die, right? Tabitha died twice. Um, they eventually die. You know, Aeneas probably got sick again somehow. Peter is crucified upside down. And so our stories end, but God's story is eternal. And we're, we actually get to participate in that eternal story. And so while our story here ends, our story continues in an eternal sense with God. I love this quote um, that a friend of mine used to say all the time, but he says, stories only happen to people who can tell them. And it's sort of a highbrow kind of statement of like, well, if you're a good storyteller, then you'll have lots of stories to share. But I'm looking at it a different way. 
it's not a story unless you tell it, right? It's not, you don't have a story if you don't tell it. You might think it in your mind, but a story is something that comes out of your mouth. It's a word, right? It's a word that comes out of your heart, out of your mind, and they meet here in the middle and it comes out and is expressed into the world for others to hear. God told a story, a very powerful story through the person of Jesus. The word of God made flesh in this world. The story God had to say to us, hey, this is the story. This is the thing I want you all to know about. This is the thing I want you all to participate in. It comes out in the person of Jesus, word made flesh. And that is the gospel, right? This God who designed us, who, who created us and said we're good, and then we fall and he says, hey, I'm going to solve this problem through the person of Jesus because I want to talk to you. I want to have adventures with you. Let's go. There are many things we don't understand uh, in our story and we'll probably never understand. Like, why, why does God only heal Aeneas? What about all the other, you know, what about all the other sick people who are there? Um, I don't think that's our job to question those things. I think our task is to recognize the person of Jesus, to recognize the life he's given us. And even in our suffering, even in our difficulties, it says we rejoice. Uh, James says rejoice in your suffering. Pete, Paul rejoices in his suffering because we're like Jesus who suffered with us. but We're also triumphant like Jesus who conquered death. And so we get to participate in him in his great story, but we've got to be able to tell ours. And so that's our challenge this morning as we look at this. Let me close in a word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that you told us your story. You didn't remain hidden. You weren't a God who hid behind, you know, do not look at the person behind the mirror kind of a thing or behind the, the um, curtain. But Lord, your word became flesh. You dwelt among us and we understood who you are. We understood that you loved us to the point of, of death and even death on a cross. And we thank you for that, Lord. May we take the lives that you've given us. May we give them back to you again today as we do every day. We just, Lord, here we are, send us. But Lord, could you open our mouths and help us to see the transformative and miraculous ways in which you've interacted with us in our lives? Lord, would you quicken to our minds? Uh, the ways in which you've transformed our hearts, the ways in which you've, you've walked us like Joseph, maybe through very difficult times, but for a very specific purpose. Lord, and if we're in the middle of the problem, if we're in the middle of the mess, we just look to you and we say, Lord, we trust you. We know that your ways are good. We know that your purposes are for our own good. And so, Lord, we thank you so much that we have that hope in you. And Lord, we hope to see all of the people in Issaquah turned because the testimony was given. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen.